This is UCD Business Impact. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now, as the COVID crisis evolves and changes, there's a continuing focus on leadership and leadership in crisis conditions. How do we all make better decisions is ultimately the question, whether that be in private companies, in government, and of course, in civic society. And today's podcast is going to take a very wide lens on that question. And uniquely, we don't just have one guest, but two, Professor Caron Sonpaire, who is in researching in the area of organizational behavior. He previously serves as a captain in the Indian Army prior to moving into academia. And he researches along with Professor Federica Pazalia, who researches in the areas of the role of regulatory authorities in shaping business practices and behavioral approaches to strategy, among other things. And both of my guests are going to be looking at this whole area of decision-making, particularly in crisis conditions. So you're both very welcome to the Business Impact Podcast. First of all, I just want to get your reaction because I do it in every single podcast to what's been happening since, well, depending what part of the world you're in, but certainly since earlier in the calendar year to those first outbreaks, the way it's evolved, sweeping through Asia, then up into Europe, across to North America. We had the very, very severe lockdowns of March and April. We loosened up in the summer, and now we see somewhat of a resurgence of cases and unfortunately some deaths as well, depending on what particular geography you take. And Maybe I'll come to you first, Federica. I mean, as somebody who looks at crises, who looks at management, who looks at how people make the decisions, what's your own reaction been so far to, to what you've seen? Thank you so much, Emmett. So uh, from my perspective, I think what has uh, uh, really been something that stuck out to me about this uh, uh, COVID crisis is the extent to which this is really representative of what we would call a low probability, high impact event. So I think any of us, I mean, if we had just gone back to maybe a year, or maybe even like several months, we would have never foreseen something like this happening, even though it's something that if we go further back in time has happened before. We've had crisis before, we've had crisis like this one before, like pandemics before. So certainly we would not have seen it happening even though and the, the potentially, if we go back in memory, the seeds of something like that or the, uh, the clues of something like that was certainly something that we could have foreseen as, as happening. And so low probability, but also high impact, which means that uh, uh, we don't believe it's very likely to happen, but it's, if it happens, it's going to be really taking the world by a storm as it did. And we all saw it in the last few months. And I think in addition to that, uh, we can really say, that uh, uh, what has come with the COVID crisis is uh, for all of us, for us as uh, uh, people who work in organizations, for people who are, uh, say, working government, for society as a whole, this has really posited a wicked problem for us in the sense that there's no easy answer. So what we are advised to do to protect the health of our employees, the, the health of our families, the health of our citizens, uh, it's, it's really, if you think of it, in stark contrast to what we would be advised to keep the health of the economy. So at which point, clearly, this is a, a very difficult trade-off to balance. And at which point do you draw the line? At which point you say, I'm going to stop the measures for, for example, to, to kickstart the economy, and I'm just going to take a bit more, pay more attention to, the, to what's happening from the health front. So I think that certainly has given us, it's impacted us very strongly. 
and it's given us a lot to think and a lot, I think, to, to work with in the next, in the past few months, but certainly in the next several months as well. Aaron, uh, what do you think of it's a black swan event, uh, as we t- talked about in the financial crisis? I mean, how have you been looking at the whole thing from your vantage point? So uh, building on what Federica said now, I think, yes, it's a low probability, high impact event. And building on the prior points, we had SARS, we had MERS. So in the last couple of decades, this has happened and it was predicted to happen. This was not even a what if situation. This was a when situation. So you have Bill Gates and a lot of people speaking, speaking about this. So it was a known unknown as such. But looking at it a bit further and building on your question also is that when we start thinking of these kind of events, the fascinating thing for us from an academic perspective is that risk typically, as one participant put it to us, is a function of memory. And so if you've seen something happen before, you're more likely to react in a more well-informed manner. An example in point being the very coronavirus crisis went across the globe. But countries which had dealt with SARS previously, particularly in Southeast and East Asia, take the case of Taiwan, Singapore, South Korea, Japan, and so forth, they were able to react a bit faster. Whereas on the other hand, people at the periphery, say if it's in the West or a country like India or Latin America or the States, they've seen it happening elsewhere. But our minds are structured in such a manner that we tend to be overconfident and we tend to underestimate the possibility that this can impact us also. And do you think that one of the allied problems to that is the idea that we have precious resources, we, have, we, have, we don't have everything we need in terms of assets and money and wealth and capital. It's not limitless. So we're trying to apportion that around the world. And the problem with something like a pandemic, because it only happens, or certainly in recent centuries, you know, roughly around once a hundred years, if you take the Spanish flu as the last one on this scale, isn't it very hard for politicians or policymakers to say, let's go and spend billions of dollars, billions of euros on a preventative sort of system or program, and then something doesn't happen and everyone says, well, that was a waste of money. So in other words, how can you prepare for these unusual events because you are going to be pushing up against the resistance of society saying, well, we're, that, that's something that might happen. There are things afflicting the society that are happening that are going to get neglected if you try and kind of cover off for these once in a million type events. Isn't that a real problem and an and understandable one in a sense? I would say uh, I completely agree with you. And uh, it's really hard being at the top making those trade-offs because very often a lot of people in leadership positions don't like what if something happens because they have to deal with something that is happening, even if uh, that's not as big a crisis as such. However, that being said, when we are talking about accidents and crises as such, I do believe that to some extent, whether it's organizations or it's nations can do a bit more when it comes to preparing for the high impact events, because the consequences are going to be very extreme if you do not get it right. Now, Federica, you've been watching some of the decision makers, the people taking those big medical, healthcare, political, you've mentioned economic decisions right from Washington back into Europe, back into Asia. I mean, what what kind of worries do you have about the kind of decisions that are going to be made or have been made and the kind of biases that will uh, crop up when they are made. 
first of all, this is not, uh, not a simple uh, decision. So that there are many considerations, as uh, we were mentioning before, uh, to be balanced together. So health-based considerations, but also economic considerations. So certainly one of the big risks is to kind of swing the pendulum too far in one direction, neglecting the other. And in part, at the beginning of the, of the pandemic, we saw the most severe lockdowns. I think that was in part due to the novelty of the, of the phenomenon, in part as a way to build the resource or, or build up the resources to, to deal with, with something that people didn't really know how bad could get. But certainly, I think that one important aspect is to strike some kind of a balance where none of the two aspects in, is neglected in favor of the other one. And uh, uh, I think another aspect that is, uh, that is uh, very important is to uh, maybe kind of give a bit more voice to people who could have an informed opinion. So if there's anyone in, uh, like you said, in, in government, but in the medical field as well, just kind of build a bit of, uh, of reservoir of, of options and what ifs, just to kind of get a sense of what could happen going forward and what are possible contingencies, possible, um, you know, kind of possible courses of actions that could help us address that. So just kind of try to, to get views on this, but also at the same time, make a decision and stick with the decision you're making. So I think another aspect that, uh, that could be a risk going forward is uh, uh, collecting excessive amount of information and not really never acting. And, and I think that that's difficult to do, but it's important to do. So try to uh, identify a viable course of action and just kind of communicate it to the people and stick with it going forward. So I think giving people some element of communication that is certain, that is clear, so they know what to expect going forward. Haran, do you want to um, do you want to add to that point? Okay, yeah, yeah I, I do agree. And, and Federica, I think she put it very nicely in the beginning. It's a wicked problem. And a wicked problem has no easy answers. And in a wicked problem, sometimes the solution is worse than the problem as such. Right? So there are no easy answers. That being said, I think there are two or three things which can be done. And the first one is clarity of message. And occasionally when you see leaders and or countries and organizations being clear in their message, clear, simple, and consistent, it provides a certain level of stability, stability to organizational routines. And it provides a certain level of comfort to people also, because they start believing that the leadership knows what it's doing and what it's talking about. That's the first one. Uh, the second one is everybody understands and recognizes that people in leadership roles do not have all the answers or all the information. So avoiding the extremes of trying to terrify people with project fear based stories, or on the other hand, saying that everything is grand and you know, we have it in hand. I mean, it's, 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 it's a trade off, which we do not see being made that well around us. Yeah, you, you have a very interesting idea, which is the, the, the fallibility of leaders, that we don't acknowledge this, but also the leaders themselves don't like to acknowledge it. We sort of go back into the history of, certainly in my area of history, we talk about the great man theory of history, that there's one individual, and, and, and often it was, um, for other reasons, a man that was involved, that one particular individual is absolutely pivotal to the development of something. And what you guys, the two of you, are saying is that this idea that leaders are fallible is something we need to grapple with, and out of that can actually come something positive. 
Yes, I, I, I do completely agree. And so building on the point, it's like, you know, we have this romanticized view of leadership. We have these hyper muscular views of leadership, of what a leader looks like, you know, possibly a certain gender of a certain height and a certain ethnicity and certain traits. And this is problematic for a variety of reasons. I mean, to start with, leaders are incomplete. We all are incomplete in our own ways. And when you have these romanticized or hyper-muscular views of leadership, what it basically does is it puts the onus on people at the top to get everything right, know everything, and show that they are in complete control and maintain a happy face in the face of crisis. Uh, this is dangerous for a variety of reasons to start with. If you use this approach to leadership, you are filtering out the voices. You are not listening to people who can help you and make you make better decisions because they have access to information you do not have. Adrika, do you want to agree with that or do you think that's um, something that you couldn't subscribe to? No, actually, I agree with it in the sense that very often we do see and we do celebrate as societies and business communities, we do celebrate very strong leader figures, which kind of tends to, to convey the image that the, the way leaders are is somebody who has no doubt, somebody who can make the decision and that underplays all the voices and all the advice that probably they have been, uh, all the, the, the examples they would have seen throughout their career. And so that certainly leaders are not, uh, uh, I think are, are becoming, certainly it's important they're technical experts, it's important they can assuage the, the, maybe the concerns of, of their employees, but I think that the soft stuff has become more important in recent years. And I think if there's anything that uh, from a leadership standpoint that I think this crisis has really uh, made come across very strongly is the value uh, of leadership in moments of crisis, but also the challenges that leaders face in moments of, of crisis. And so the soft stuff, talking to their employees, being able to listen to employees when they have concerns, but also when they maybe have seen or picked up on some insights that could be you know, valuable down the line. They may not be immediately uh, problems, but could become problems down the line. So being able to, to uh, engage in what we say strategic listening, that's actually something that I think is becoming very valuable. It's coming across as very valuable right now. Do either of you think that the whole idea of leadership is questioned from the point of view of this idea of one individual being elevated among a group of individuals? That we, we, we have that from, you know, probably from a military standpoint. And Karan, I know you've got something to say on that side. Is, is the idea of elevating one person among the group and this person is going to be the person we listen to. They're going to be the front of the press conference. They're going to be the name on which the policy stands or falls. Is, is that something you'd question or is that just inevitable? I think there are, uh, it's a very good question and there is a quite a bit of nuance to this question. So to start with, I mean, uh, we've replaced the word manager with leader nowadays. And I think when we are talking of leadership, leadership is something that is done. It's a verb. It's exercised. It's an act that can be performed by multiple people across levels in an organization. The problem with a single leader view approach of leadership is that we perceive that this person at the top is supposed to know everything. Actually, at the end of it, a leader is meant to be somebody who can build consensus, who can build consensus and who can listen. 
of course, at the end of the day, the buck stops at the leader and everybody has to pull in the direction of the leader. But even when it comes to the military, listening is really, really important. And you have people across various levels of the organization who advise, have access to information and influence the end outcome. I mean, we, we, we look to them to be so much of an embodiment of the different skills. I mean, I look at the team that are managing the COVID response here in Ireland, and most of them, not all, but most of the team are medics. But the job we often ask them to do is to stand at the front of a press conference to, as you said earlier, carry a message, make that message effective. So, you know, there's a certain salesmanship going on here. There's a certain advocacy for a certain course of action going on. And I doubt any of the medics were prepared in their professional um, training to perform that type of role. Now, we're lucky a lot of them happen to be good at it anyway, but uh, some of them may not be. So it's just kind of, we're asking people to do very different things than they would have been professionally trained to do. Is that something, Federica, that you have noticed or would somewhat concern you? Uh, I have noticed it, but uh, I would say it does not concern me in the sense that uh, uh, certainly there is an importance of technical expertise or training uh, the way you've described it. But I think uh, uh, it's very important for, for anybody really who is in a position of leadership to be able to pick up what we call before the soft skills. So being able to talk to others, convey a message, to uh, uh, reassure others or to engage in strategic activities like, like listening or uh, having small conversations with people. I think that is something that can be certainly uh, learned or developed over time. So I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not concerned about that per se, I think that the part that I'm maybe, I'm noticing it's a bit more of a struggle is, uh, is uh, uh, when you're, uh, for example, you made the example of medics being, uh, being put in charge of, of dealing with this crisis, is uh, uh, to what extent will they be able to go beyond thinking like medics and they'll be able to think like economists and maybe take into account other aspects which need to be traded off with medical considerations. But apart from that, I think, which I think the public will also uh, encourage them to do. So it, it's inevitable that it'll have to happen. But I think other than that, I wouldn't be too concerned. And in your research, Frederica, you've come up with this idea, and I think Karan is very familiar with it too, both of you are, the idea of attention traps and that these can pull down leaders. Can you just talk to me a little bit of what that concept is and how it might then relate back to what we're currently uh, trying to address? Certainly. I can start maybe by, by explaining uh, why we have this concept of attention traps. And uh, it really comes from the, the realization that anybody, any human, and certainly any leader or, or top manager of an organization has limited attention. And has limited attention just because there's so much going on and there's only so much we can process as human beings. And if you think of it, the more you rise in the, in the organization or in society, if you think of government, the more real information comes at you. It's not very well formed. There's a lot of it. Some of it may not even be, as we uh, listen to more often in the recent times, may not even be true. So how do you really filter, filter through all this information that gets thrown at you? And how do you use the information you think makes sense to make decisions? So... There's limited resource in terms of attention. There's a lot to be filtered out. And so the mind gets sometimes cornered and gets into blind spots. Uh, for example, we spoke before about uh, recency. 
and we spoke about memory. We said risk is a function of memory. So certainly your attention would go to something if you're pushed to choose something you've seen before and you know is, is dangerous, you know can be a, a problem for your organization. Something that you've never seen before would not be seen by you as much of a problem and most likely would be disregarded. And there are other, uh, other types of situations like you mentioned before about the medics. Certainly most of us thinks, think of situations from the functional expertise viewpoint we have. So a med medical per person will see any problem mostly from a medical standpoint. Somebody from an accounting or finance background will see problems from that perspective. So certainly these are examples of what you could define as attention traps. It sounds a bit like a, a, if you're holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail is essentially the, the concept. Very, very close to that, yeah. That would be your point of view, the frame of reference you use. <laughs> you're very kind. Uh, the simplified version. Uh, Karan, what, what do you think about this idea that we, we only have so much bandwidth, uh, cognitive space maybe is a way to call it, and all this stuff is pouring in and everyone at the moment is chewing through the data. I mean, if you go onto Twitter, you'll just see everyone is, it's war of the spreadsheets. Everyone is saying, well, this piece of data shows this and then somebody counters that with, well, sorry, this one shows that. How does somebody kind of cut through all that noise and actually arrive at, a, at the right point where a good decision is made? I think one of the problems which happens in this kind of a situation is anchoring. We anchor, you know, there's something called an anchoring bias. We anchor to a certain point of view and then we just, it's, it's escalating commitment towards, you know, that particular point of view. So we start looking for data and start sharing only that data which supports our point of view, but conveni conveniently ignore other data sources. That's one of the things you start digging in more and more to how you've seen things in the past. The other thing we kind of tend to do again, as Federica said, is like, you know, saliency bias, giving salience to some issues or some pieces of information over other issues or other pieces of information. So my view would be above everything else is that when one is uh, trying to analyze anything and perhaps one of the hardest questions to answer is where is the data? What data are we using? And I'm going to use a military example to get this point across. So, uh, I mean, I've read this story a few times previously, but this popped up again today on my LinkedIn page and it relates to World War II. And what happened at that point of time is that when the Allied planes were returning after a lot of these combat missions, you know, a lot of them had, you know, been hit with certain bullets and so forth. And so the military started doing a study to try to identify the areas which had been hit most by the bullets so that they could reinforce it and make it stronger. But uh, it took quite a while. And after a certain point, people suddenly asked the question, but what about the planes that didn't make it back? Is it possible they didn't make it back because they were hit at the parts and they were, and that did not return. So what we only saw were the parts, the survivors of battle. And we saw the survivors of battle with bullets at certain parts of the plane. And what we did not see is the planes that did not return. And we do not know where they were hit because of which they went down. That's interesting. So, so relate that for me back into what we're talking about in terms of leadership. Is, is it that people are not examining the right areas and they're going down sort of rabbit holes? Yeah. So the question is, are we, are we asking the right questions? What is the data we are using? Are we asking the right questions? Are we framing the problem correctly? What are the assumptions we are making? What are the assumptions we are making when we are evaluating certain data sources? 
I think making our assumptions explicit is very important and very often we do not do it. And you know, to share an example of coronavirus, something kind of interesting I read and there is so much information today that it's kind of hard to know what's accurate, what's not accurate and to what certain situations is something accurate. But an example in point could be when you are comparing fatality rates across countries. I read and I don't know how accurate it is because we live in this crisis of the real era where we do not know what's really true. That when it comes to Germany, what I read was that at the elderly age groups, the fatality rate is pretty similar to other countries. You know, it's pretty similar to other countries. And what may have happened is there was possibly better shielding and better protection for more vulnerable populations. Now, these are the type of interesting anomalies or trends that one has to identify and look at when one is trying to make sense of data. Okay, Federica, do you want to come in on that? No, I, I very much agree in the sense that we have, uh, I think the main, main issue is uh, a lot of information. Uh, a lot of information is ill-formed. A lot of it is kind of contradicting each other and uh, uh, looking at, looking past what is more apparent, what is being more, maybe more shared uh, and kind of getting a tangential point of view and, and asking the questions like, what if we go down this path, kind of exploring even maybe the bit more tangential points of view, I think will we'll add value going forward. Okay, I'm going to transition on a little bit because time is, is against us. As I said, both of you um, contribute to a, an award-winning paper. It won Best Overall Paper Award at the Academy of Management 2020 conference from the careers division there. And it's talking about when people move between workplaces, how their identity is shaped by their work. And I think we can actually tie the two together. And you know, forgive me for a stretch here, but I do think it, it, it does make sense. And either of you come in on this, but... Tell me a little bit about your paper, because what I was really interested in is this idea that we're shaped by the work we do. And obviously that has a positive. We bring certain skills, certain knowledge, certain past experiences between workplaces. Equally, maybe we can become trapped by only knowing one thing, going back to Karan's example of it a few minutes ago and the World War II pilots coming home. Either of you, whoever wants to jump in, the microphones are available for either one to comment on that. But just tell me a little bit about your paper first and then how it might relate to some of the things we're talking about. Maybe I can start talking about introducing the, uh, the paper and the, the main idea that the paper is, is developing. So uh, one of the things that was uh, striking for us was that uh, while we all know that uh, never uh, as much in the past like now, people are moving from you know, role to role, organization to organization, different industries in a very discontinuous manner, which kind of really prompted them to almost reinvent themselves entirely. A lot of what we saw in, in the literature, but also in, in the practice press, was uh, uh, dominated by the assumption that people just kind of very neatly move on from place to place. And almost like when the door closes, they, they put everything behind and they become this new person. So sometimes they may have a transition period where they kind of learn the new, uh, the, the new culture, the new norms, but pretty much whatever they were before was, was gone. But that didn't seem to be very realistic. I mean, we are all aware, for example, of alumni groups. So if, if it was so easy to leave places we've been behind, why would there be so many alumni groups that do so many things together, stay in touch for years? So we kind of wanted to know and understand a little bit of, of, of that. And we, we uh, discovered, looking at a specific example of uh, um, people who have uh, uh, left a very uh, an occupation that means a lot to them, so that had the potential to leave an imprint for them. We actually saw there are people who 
carry the values of their prior organization and occupation with them for years. And they continue to be defined by who they were in, in occupations they've been before, places they've been before, even universities they've been before. And that is not just happening because the places they've been before are prestigious or give them a boost in, in terms of, you know, you've been in a top school or you've been in a, you've worked for a top consultancy firm, but just because the place resonates with you. And so this is really, our paper is about looking at this phase of, we called it before, liminality, in which people are a bit of what they are now, what they do now, but also a bit of where all the places where they've been before. Aaron, um, we have an old joke in Ireland about people from County Cork, a mother and a son, and she describes her son as my son, the engineer. Um, everyone will, will remember it over the years. It was a great one to pull out to discuss this kind of subject you're talking about, which is people become their work and their work becomes those people. Um, is that essentially something you're researching in this paper and is it something that then relates back to our conversation earlier about how medics have to become you know, communicators and communicators have to become medics and so on. So how do we kind of keep people from becoming just their job or just their role and ignoring all those other pieces of them? So uh, I would say that when we are talking, the point we are making in terms of liminality is you are neither this nor that both this and that. And I would argue that liminality for the most part or being just a certain type, you know, being a certain prototype for the most part has been seen as something good. And this may not be entirely true because building on your point, you need to have a few additional skills and be in that middle space, which can translate issues or information and speak to multiple audiences as such. So, for example, you need politicians who need to be more minded about issues related to medicine and technology, and you need medical and technical experts to understand issues related to the economy and messaging a bit more. Okay, well, let's see if that happens. Um, we have come towards the end of our time slot. We got a lot in, a very rich conversation, everything from the Indian Army to how offices and leadership works, leadership styles, crisis management, muscular leadership forms, attention traps, fallibility. <laughs> Thanks to, to both of you. It's been a very enjoyable conversation. It's definitely a first for the podcast to have a husband and wife team and a joint research team on board. And you could see as a result, the conversation was very rich and very, very um, diverse. Thank you very much for both of you for joining us. That's Professor Haran Sonpar and also Professor Frederica Pazalia, both of you, congratulations on your recent award and thanks very much for coming on and sharing your thoughts today with us.